Hello, everyone. This is WCCS Podcast once again. This is the second episode of our new series, A Moment, uh, no, A History of Music. I'm getting my podcast mixed up. I'm Harrison Zyberg, and I have a guest with me today if they want to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Tyler Finney, and I'm happy to be here. So, Tyler, um, we're talking about Paul Robson. Now, before we actually start, I want to say I've done research into this guy. But I'm not an expert on this guy. If I get stuff wrong, that's on me. I'm going to be as, I'm going to try to be as accurate as I possibly can be. I may get stuff wrong. I'm just going to, I'm just going to put that out there now. Okay. Well, you know, I, you won't, the viewers you should know. know, the viewers should know I will not be getting anything wrong. Harrison will be picking up that slack for me. Yes, I will. I have, <laughs> I have done research, but Paul Robson is the most interesting man you've never heard about i have never heard about him so i and i am already very interested i'm so. going to list some facts for you in college he varsity lettered in 12 sports 12 sports did he they even 12, he had 12 varsity letters it may have been the same sport he was phi beta kappa he was a valedictorian wow he graduated from columbia law school he was a movie star he traveled the world as a singer. Really? He was a civil rights advocate in the 1930s okay. and 40s. He, um, he also was probably the world's most famous black man in the 1930s and 40s. Wow. I can't believe I've never heard of him then. That's crazy. And we're going to get into why you probably haven't heard of him at the very end. Mm. Um, but so, yeah, so he was born in 1898. He was mm -hmm. the son of an enslaved man. He was born in 1898. He grows up in New Jersey. And eventually, uh, his father's a preacher. And his father, a, lar a large part of Paul's life was the lesson his father taught him about personal integrity. And basically, mm -hmm. he's, his father told him, you shouldn't care about wealth or status, just that you're living up to your own personal potential. And they're trying to fulfill that potential. That's so a great lesson. So it's all about personal fulfillment and pushing yourself um, as far as possible. To Now, Paul, he didn't really know his mom. His mom passed away when he was young. And his father passed away when he was like 20-ish. So he was given this lesson and then put out, gone out into the world. He was the only black student at Rutgers, which is college in New Jersey had had two black students before. When he went in, he was the only one. Mm. Wow. And, he's, and he still managed to be like a nationally known college football player, an actor, and a varsity athlete. Do we 12. know what it was like for him being um, a player on the football team, like within that environment? Ah, so from what, I, from what I've learned and I, wa I watched in a documentary and I read is that when he joined the football team, they basically attacked him like the other football players. They would knock him down. They broke his nose. They literally, they stopped, stepped on his hand. So all of his fingernails came oh, Jesus. off. And then basically he, he said himself, he got up and he was ready to fight them. He was going to fight them. And then the coach blew the whistle and said, okay, you're on the team. Cause he, he stood up for himself, but he faced this horrible, horribly racist attack. Mm. It was, most likely racially motivated being the only black man definitely um and he's and then he's on the team for four years and he graduates at valedictorian he wins um different awards for diction so like for speech giving 
Like he's a tremendously accomplished person and he's this nationally known football figure as a college student. So how, like in what way was he giving speeches during this time? Was it like as a member of the football team he was giving speeches, do you think? Or was it just like in any sort of event? So it was like, it was part of a competition. It was like a diction competition. So mm. it would be having to get up and compete against other students. And he won, um, he at least won one year. I believe he won multiple times. He also won the year his father died, who went through this horrible tragedy. And then he also, either right before then or right after then, won this competition for giving a speech. And he wow. was the only black man at this all-white school. I can't even imagine how hard that would be to manage. So even by the age of 21, when I believe he graduated college, he's already incredibly accomplished. But he didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. He had acted a little bit, but he didn't really say it as a profession. He knew he was could... he acting in. So was he acting in plays? Mm-hmm. He was in plays at this point. When were local plays, he um hmm. he knew he could sing, but he didn't really think this was a career for him yet. So he goes to Columbia Law School. Columbia Law he, School. And he oh. graduates three years later and he gets this job and he calls in a secretary to take, um, to take notes for him. And this white secretary said, I won't take notes for a black man. Mm. So again, he's already a Rutgers University graduate, a valedictorian, Phi Beta Kappa. He's incredibly accomplished at such an early age and he faces this racism and discrimination at his own workplace from a workplace subordinate said i will not take diction for you i will not take notes for you yeah that experience unfortunately was pretty much inescapable for him it seems Mm -hmm. so he says okay i'm done with this i'm not going to be a lawyer he wasn't it always seemed like he wasn't super into being a lawyer he had the law degree and he practiced for a little bit but it wasn't his calling so he leaves and then he starts to go and perform in these plays so he's already sort of had three careers. He was already like the college athlete, the lawyer, then he starts throwing on plays. And how old was he by this point? He was in his 20s. That's unbelievable. So that is he, more than most lifetimes. <laughs> then he starts performing these plays. And it's not just like, again, it's local plays. He, um, there's a famous playwright, Eugene O'Neill, who sort of, they become friends. He mm. performs in some of his plays. But then he starts to perform on Broadway. On Broadway, really? And he has this tremendous deep singing voice, like baritone bass. And you may have heard it before, but if you haven't, a, fa- a song he became famous for was the song Old Man River. Oh, did he sing that, really? He sang that song. Now, the interesting wow. thing about that song is that it starts off with very racist lyrics. And it's mm-hmm. sort of like a song of like, there was a black man singing to the subordinate. Like the line is, you get a little drunk and get thrown in jail. Mm-hmm. He sings that song throughout his career and he changes it as he does so. So eventually it becomes more of a song of resistance. Oh, that's great. Of, like the line changes from you get a little drunk to you show a little grit and get thrown in jail. Mm. So I assume, so when he sang that and he changed the lyrics, did he, I assume he maybe faced any sort of backlash when doing that or did were the people not really seem to care as much? I don't think so, but also this is the most interesting and the most famous man you've never heard about. Because I can't believe was, I've never heard of him. He was worldwide famous. Wow. He, um, so he's, he's in the plays and he starts being in movies. And originally he wrote this down in his book, Here I Stand, where he thought, or may have heard it in an interview, but he thought that any role that he could get was advancing not only his cause, but his people's cause, because it was a black man being on screen at a time where that wasn't a thing that happened normally. 
Right. Not to mention the fact that so many black roles are basically taken up by white actors in blackface, which is a huge mm -hmm. problem. So he was a darker skinned black man, physically big. He was like over six feet tall and he had a wide frame. So, and he was being, having this representation and he was in plays and he was singing and he was in movies. But his roles, if you look at them now, were a lot of stereotypes. Right. Now, he never wanted to be in movies that showed him as a stereotype, but they were sort of the only roles he could get for a very long time. And there was very few movies where he actually could be a positive role model, like a positive um, showing of a black man on screen and not mm -hmm. just a stereotype fitted for a 1930s white director. So was he able to make the leap to movies from the plays he was in, I assume, and like his singing career? Like, is that how mm -hmm. he sort of vaulted off of it? Basically. Um, yeah, basically. So he, he had the singing career, he plays. So he sort of like, he got gradually more and more famous. Mm -hmm. And then he starts selling out concerts and touring. And eventually, what's an interesting thing is in the 20s, so he was 27 when he did this, I believe, in 1925. But he says, I'm going to sing concerts because he has this tremendous voice and was famous for it. But I'm going to sing all black spirituals. Mm. So, and like no one was doing that. And he would sell out concert after concert after concert, singing songs from his people. Wow. So he was doing these revolutionary things in a time when there was not a space for him to, it was, a, it was very little space in society or it's white society to accept him as that. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of selling out, I, I presume, like a very heavily white crowd to listen to him sing Black spiritual songs. I mean, there's got to be a lot of power in that in the moment. Mm -hmm. And eventually, eventually he moves to the UK. And in the UK, he still, um, still faces discrimination, but he faces less discrimination. He starts playing Othello, which is famous Shakespearean play. It's the only Black character that Shakespeare wrote. It usually wasn't played by a black actor. Do we know what motivated him to move to the UK in the first place? Motivation? I'm not entirely sure, but I know he had opportunities to sing in Europe. Yeah. Plus, I assume that as his global superstardom, uh, like as the superstardom began to grow, I assume it might have gone overseas. So it would just make sense. And really, as he moved to the UK, is when he started to be associated with more left leaning ideas and politics. Mm -hmm. Because he, he not only, I know, so you know Wales, which is part of the UK, mm -hmm. and at least I believe it's predominantly white, at least it historically has, and I'm not sure now. Right. But he becomes associated with Welsh miners because he sort of just, like he heard about their strike and he sort of just happened to come up on one of their protests. So there was a big miner strike in Wales? Mm -hmm. And he sang for them. So he becomes famous in Wales, which is a weird because you wouldn't expect that to happen that this black man from new jersey in the 1930s 20s and 30s becomes famous in wales wow. for him being supportive of miners and unions so basically he goes to england and becomes associated with left-leaning ideas um with unions and then eventually with oh he starts to meet at different colleges in england where he's helped studied a bit he had a gift for language um he, he sang in probably about 20 languages. It, he may have known 12. So you feel as though he was able to pick up a lot of these left-leaning ideas from his work with unions? Partially, and he also just 
because there was less discrimination in the UK than in the US, he became friends with leading figures in society, with left-leaning intellectuals. So mm. he started to have all of these ideas. Um, and eventually he becomes, I believe he identifies as a socialist. He never joins the Communist Party, but he identifies as a socialist. And he That's also- dangerous from that time. And also because a lot of colonial, um, this is still the British Empire, which saw a lot of colonies, especially in Africa, a lot of African people, uh, a lot of future leaders of Africa were studying in England the same time he was there. Really? Wow. So he becomes friends with them. And eventually he starts to advocate for anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism um, mm -hmm. and the liberation of these colonies. Now he's doing all of this stuff. He's an incredibly famous man. And he's traveling the world. He actually even gets to go to the Soviet Union where he performs a few times. So how much would you say that these left-leaning ideas made their way into the stuff that he was performing? Probably, so they were there. I want to say they were there before him, but you can see he does start, he performs union songs and he performs songs from around the world from, with different meanings and different cultures and different languages. Mm. Um, so he does all of these things. Now, eventually he goes, he realizes through his time in England that he needs to go back to the U.S. and start fighting for his people, like his, the, his community in the U.S. Right. He, he realizes this like, oh, I can't abandon them. I'm not saying he'd abandon them, but he needs to go back and help them. And he basically puts his career, I won't say on hold, but he says, I'm going to gear my career towards the advancement of Black people in America. Mm. So he comes home and is incredibly outspoken on different issues um, for anti-lynching, for he actually meets President Truman and, and argues in front of him saying for an anti-lynching law and Truman rebuffs him says he won't really, like it wasn't politi politically expedient to do that. Um, he goes, he holds a lot of rallies for different causes. And he's just still this internationally known figure now, not just for his singing career or his acting career or his movie career or his previous athletic career, but as a civil rights advocate and advocating mm -hmm. not only for his own civil rights, but for the civil rights of people around the world. Now, I'm, su I'm sure that he probably faced at least some degree of backlash from this from white audiences who really like they were just so deep rooted within their own prejudice they weren't even able to comprehend any of this that definitely did happen and though there's some interesting things where that really started to come out later on which we'll get to and that has to do with the soviet union but what should be said beforehand um is what he did when he actually got to play Othello in the united states on broadway wow okay now it became, he was the first black actor, I believe, on Broadway to play that Shakespearean black role. And it was the longest running Shakespearean play ever on Broadway's history. Really? Now, eventually he's, they travel the United States with this and they say, we will not play to segregated theaters. Mm. So it's this, he turns this play also into a political statement. But what's also interesting is that um, Desdemona, which would be the female lead in that play, does not is a white woman. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was played by a white woman. Um, so even then, there was sort of this. It had a black 
male lead and a white woman um, who were married in the place, which and that was another political statement. And he even talked about how like, oh, in some places I couldn't stand as close to her because we just wow. don't know how the audience is going to react. That's completely revolutionary to be able to completely turn the play. Well, I mean, the play, I mean, the subtext of the play was already there, but the fact he was able to just load it with so much importance in the way that it was being presented, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And what's also, so all that's going on, World War II breaks out. Now, before then, he had already noticed the rise of fascism. He had sung for the troops in the Spanish Civil War, like on the front lines. He had traveled to Spain and he ends up becoming, um, during the war, very, an advocate for like buying war bonds. Like he's very much, he's like the voice of America. I think it's called Ballad for the U.S., which is a TV program or um, a record, but he's mm -hmm. like the main singer. So again, the voice of America, the Ballad for the U.S., is a black man, is this famous black man. So again, he's making all these revolutionary moves. And he's, it's not that he's not mean in resistance in the U.S. He has faced quite a lot of racism, but he still is moving up in society. He still is, I think it said the 10th most famous man in the United States. Wow, that's incredible. I cannot, like, I, I know I mentioned this before, but like, I don't, you only keep telling me about more and more of how clearly important he was. And I'm, I had just don't feel like I've ever seen much about him at all. And then it gets, his story gets more complicated. He goes to the Soviet Union. He had been supportive of the Soviet Union. And he learns eventually about what Stalin was doing. Now, earlier he had said, I only, like the first time I felt like a man was in the Soviet Union because he didn't feel like he was being discriminated against. He didn't feel like he had to hide himself. Mm -hmm. But eventually he, was, like, he goes back and he's like, oh, where's my friend? And they finally bring him his friend. And basically he learns that what Stalin is doing, which is his purges, he's killing off um, the intellectuals, a large portion of them, Jewish intellectuals. Mm -hmm. And how he was, again, he had been very advocate on his support for the Jewish community. He had been very, this was his friend he was seeing and he knew he was going to get killed. Um, eventually he does actually, he has a concert that night and he sings a song. Um, he sings a song from the Warsaw ghettos, which is where the uprising, a Warsaw uprising happened in World War II. And he mm -hmm. sings like their fights, their battle anthem, their anthem. Then he goes back to the U.S. and he knows these horrible things are happening in the Soviet Union. And people question him on it. And he said, no, the Soviet Union's good. Stalin's a good person. Not a good person, but he's a leader. And basically, he's been criticized by this because he continued to defend Stalin. But a lot of people think it was because they knew he had no space in American society to backtrack. Mm. That, if he that went, is true. That if he went against what he had said beforehand, that the Soviet Union was bad, then his fight for socialism, his fight for progress would be lost completely. Sure, they'd find any way to poke holes in whatever he said. Mm -hmm. So he was, he did end up, he supported, at least in his public view, Stalin and the Soviet Union, even though when he knew they were doing bad things, because he was sort of backed into this, he was backed into a place where he couldn't not. Because then Interesting. maybe all of what he was saying could be discredited. Hmm. Now, I believe it's 1949, it's in Paris, he's making a speech, he was asked to give a speech. Now, he says he was misquoted in this. Um, but basically, the general idea was that he said something along the lines of people thought he did, where he said, the black population of the United States will never fight a war 
against the Soviet Union. Now, this was in 1949. House Un-American Activities Committee was just starting, or was starting. Mm -hmm. And this became a very large thing because he was suggesting that someone in extent, also the Korean War was going at the same time, but he was suggesting that African-American people would not fight for the U.S. Army, which was, and basically that was, that statement split in part um, black leadership at that time against him. People were called in front of the committee to testify and say, no, that's outrageous. Of course, we'll fight like other black leaders. And basically, that sort of start, that starts the period where his career starts to go downhill. It's ironic, too, especially considering the amount of segregation within the U.S. armed forces around that time, too. And the fact that he helped sell war bonds in the Second World War, and he has always been, he was very upfront against the fight against fascism and uh, right-wing ideology. Mm -hmm. Now, he eventually is called in front of HUAC, which is House on the Activities Committee, mm -hmm. and I think everyone at least hopefully knows a little bit about it and what the term blacklisting means. Yeah, having is that having to do with uh, McCarthy, McCarthyism and all mm -hmm. that? Well, McCarthyism in the Senate, but yeah, it's the same old general idea. And I listened to his testimony, and I knew he stood up for himself. He was not, um, he did not take it lying down. But then I listened to the testimony, I didn't realize how much he did fight these congressmen for what they were accusing him of. He said... And what were they accusing him of? Basically, they were saying, trying to associate him with the Communist Party. They were trying to suggest that he was disloyal when he said African-Americans wouldn't fight, or at least when people thought he said African-Americans wouldn't fight. Mm -hmm. um, but he says, he talks, he talks a lot about his place in the United States, how the government is just trying to silence any, any black man or any black person who will stand up for themselves and talk for themselves. He calls them... He calls the people in front of them in Congress unpatriotic. He calls, and one of them says, um, well, like, if you like Russia so much, why don't you stay there? And then to which he said, because my father was, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, my father was a slave, and like, in his blood built this country, and I have every right here to, I have every right to be here, I will not let fascist-minded people drive me out. Wow, that's powerful. That's a paraphrase. I encourage you to actually like listen to the testimony. It's only 11 minutes long. Mm -hmm. um, it's on YouTube, but it's very, very powerful testimony because at some points he did assert his Fifth Amendment right, which is their very, or Fifth Amendment people, sort of their First Amendment to not testify, which is in itself very powerful of standing mm -hmm. up for the government. Also, was this testimony publicly broadcasted at the time? I don't know if it was publicly broadcast, but it was filmed and there's still audio. Mm. But and although he does assert his Fifth Amendment right, again, I'm not perfectly acceptable was necessary for many people, but he takes this 11 minutes to basically tell Congress what he thinks about them and what he thinks that this committee is doing to the United States and what the rise of fascism and white supremacy or the existence of white supremacy is doing. That's incredibly brave. What happens, though, again, he uses this international singing star, this international star, is that his passport is confiscated. They confiscated his passport. They he, had the authority to do that? Yeah, the State Department refused to uh, let him leave the country for eight years. Wow. And he was blacklisted at the same time, which means that he could not leave the country and he could not perform within the United States. 
That's that's like the definition of just silencing your opposition. They silenced him, and basically, I heard this a few times. But like, people, places would want him. He's still a very famous man. He's a very great singer, but they just couldn't have him. They would this hall would be shut down if he was able to sing. So, basically, for mm. eight plus years, he doesn't have a career. At least, not a very large one. There is one moment though where that changes, and that's when this very new technology. Um, was used just like 1940s, 1950s. But there's a concert, I believe it's in Wales. I know it's in the UK. I think it's in Wales. And they somehow made it so that his voice was projected into that hall so that you could, they could hear him. So he was oh. singing in his apartment in the United States and they could hear him in Wales. Really? Wow. That Even for that time, I wouldn't even think they'd have the capability to do that. But they, they, it was very new technology. They didn't know if it was going to work. All right. All right, so basically, what again, what happened? So he is able to broadcast his voice across the ocean and in that way somewhat perform on the international stage. But really, he's kept from leaving the country for eight years. Eight years. Eight years, and he's blacklisted. Now, eventually, he, his passport is reinstated. Eventually, he goes back to the UK and can start performing again. But this blacklisting took a real toll on himself physically, potentially mental, his mental health. There's speculation of a suicide attempt, but it's not really known what happened. Oh, wow. He was involved with that. Um, he re- wasn't receiving great medical treatment at the time. I don't know if it was, I haven't read anything that suggested it was like in retribution or because he was a black man. But I feel as though it might be a combination of the both. Yeah, he was, he was not receiving great medical treatment. He did when he went to, I believe it was Soviet doctors he went to, and he got better. Mm. And eventually he does retire. He just sort of can't physically keep up with it anymore. And he passes away in 1976, I believe. So he was 78 76. years old. Mm. Now, there's a few things um, I want to mention. One is basically, in the documentary, I read that or listened to and they said there probably wouldn't have been a Paul as famous as he was if not for his wife, Essie. Now, okay, so he, what about his wife then? So his wife was definitely his partner, um, definitely a business partner. She was there um, pushing him, helping him guide his career, what to choose, what not to do. At what point in his career did they get together? Very early on, I think in his still like very early 20s, they got together. Oh, so, so she was with him through it all, uh, like mm-hmm. all of this. Now, I talked on last episode, I talked about Pete Seeger, who was married to his wife, Toshi. And for all, from everything I've seen, it was a very happy marriage. There was the stress on it because he was a performer and Blacklist as well. This was not as good of a marriage um, from the sense of like, he wasn't, oh, he wasn't faithful always. Um, he was away a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. because he was performing sort of just so it was much more i think even to buy the that his son was described as it was half business half marriage really so it, it was a weird relationship but she was very instrumental in him in him being who he was and gaining the fame that he was and she also definitely had a career outside of him what did she do i believe besides managing him i believe she 
made films or is involved with films some way and anthropology. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know about her too much. But oh, she was definitely okay. she was she had her own career going on and her own life going on, but they still stayed together. That's great. I'm sure the blacklisting definitely did not help the marriage. No, definitely it was a lot of but yeah, he does come out of the blacklist and he's never regained the fame he had. Mm-hmm. But he still does come out and he still sings and acts a bit. But he's definitely, he, it seems like he's lost a step by the time he's passed away. So he was still able to sing and act in some productions that were willing to have him even after he was blacklisted? Because mm-hmm, sort of like the blacklist starts to come back, like back off, he can leave the country again. Mm, okay. And he finally gets his passport back. What's interesting about him, and at the very, we're going to talk about why he isn't remembered in a second, but is that it seemed that he had a great amount of, at least in his public life, personal integrity, and mm-hmm. he would not back down from what he believed in. I mean, the title of his book is, he, the only book he wrote is Here I Stand. Here I Stand. When did he write that? I believe in the 50s. I think it was around the time he was blacklisted. Oh wow! Um, okay. But I think it was during that time. But he basically, in that, he argues that um, gradualism is that he argues against that. He says we can't just wait around and hope eventually we're going to get our rights. He argues that black people need to organize and form movements and form groups to stand up for each other. Need to be black led. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes a lot about the international not only pressures that were put on so that he could perform again, but what he's seen in his travels around the world and what he's met. And he argues basically for his vision of society in this book that was very much ignored by the white press. And then uh, black newspapers did review and many of them appreciated, although I don't think it was all universal. Hmm. So I assume the book um, has found more of an audience today. Not really, because it still isn't very well known. Right, yeah, because him as a figure isn't as well-known as he mm-hmm. previously was. And it's a fairly short book. It's like only over a little bit over 100 pages. But definitely you do get in that, and when you hear other people talk about him, his, even his testimony from Huack, his unbending support of his convictions. And mm-hmm. that he knew he was right in what he was arguing for, at least he believed he was right. Um, so it, it does, it has, brings up the really big question of, why is he ignored? Why is he forgotten? Mm-hmm. Right. Because he was such a huge figure. He went through such a public, basically disavowing by not as, um, by the white community and also by some members of the black community for some of the comments he made and for what he was arguing for. So a biggest question, like, why is he not remembered as a civil rights icon, which he probably should be. Right. And I have a, I have a few ideas. I think one his age he did not he was not of like the 60s civil rights movement although he was supportive of it he was born before then he was older than them before there was any real semblance of any platform even then like the like i think when you think of civil rights movement you think of very late 50s 60s into the 70s right he was active in the 30s and 40s and 50s and like so that's he was before then so it doesn't really fit into the very simple narrative Mm-hmm. One, also with, he was a very defiant figure. He's not, and I think when you look at for public schools to teach us about different figures, usually the more defiant they are, 
the less they're going to be taught about, especially when they're arguing against the system. Yep. Case in point, Malcolm X. All people really learn in public schools about him is that he's quote unquote angry, but they never say what he's angry about or what he's actually arguing for. Mm -hmm. So he's this. So he's ignored. Also, I think you know, we talked about this last week, or we did. I read this. Um, Pete Seeger sort of had this um, revitalization of his image, largely because he outlived many of the people who criticized them. Pete Seeger lived from 1919 <laughs> to 2014. He sort of got to help build his own legacy and image. Right. Paul Robson died when he was 76. He did not. The images of McCarthy. Uh, and HUAC were very much present. Mm -hmm. They were so I don't know if he didn't live out any like how many people he did live out, but he didn't have twenty plus years to be honored and people to relook at him before he passed away. Right, especially considering like you said, he passed away in the seventies. That's only ten years removed from Reaganism and like the whole like sort of almost revival of the Red Scare and all that. So I feel mm -hmm. like like because of that his public impact still wasn't felt when he died again just to draw more i'm just to draw more comparisons to pete seeger again is that pete seeger in the 90s was recognized by the u.s government and the really? only during clinton paul robson didn't live that long he didn't get was he the, ever recognized by the u.s I government i don't believe so he may have i don't think so it's long overdue wow so i also think there's i think of when he was active, when he passed away, um, the fact that he was defiant, and the fact, one obviously you can't take race out of the picture of their decided of who's taught is about what. Of course, yeah. And also, I think he's not a very he's not easily sanitized. That's a good point. I think a lot of history's most notable figures are always have that strain of complexity to them that shows the full human range of what it means to be like a figure in the public sphere even so it's like even we're, we're taught about mlk today but we're taught a fairly sanitized version of him mm -hmm. of what he stood for um like people don't really know the fact that when he died he was disliked largely within the white community and also a majority of the black community because of his really? stances on certain issues mm. so it's very, but he's somewhat been sanitized in how we view him. Usually we're taught different marches and the uh, I Have a Dream speech with Paul Robson. It's very hard to sanitize him because he was always so outspoken in his convictions pretty much throughout his entire career. Not saying that MLK wasn't, but MLK is um, developed and he's a figure that was even seen then as the less radical. And that's how he's remembered now. Mm -hmm. Paul Robson was always very much forward what he believed in. And he always he was started off more radical than a lot of people, especially in his time and even during later on. So yeah. he's this hard. He's, he's not easy to fit in a box and to ignore what fits outside of that box. Like with MLK, where they we have effectively done that with public education, where it's his more radical elements are ignored, so that we just remember what sort of sold to us. And like you say with Malcolm X, we don't know anything about Malcolm X, mm -hmm. even though. As MLK went more to the radical, Malcolm X, I don't want to say became less radical, but changed what he was viewing. So they were coming closer together at the time of their deaths. Right. Like people in public school, they're never taught about um, the MLK speech about the white moderate, I believe, or like the quote about the, the white moderate that kind of plays into the more radical instinct that are ignored in favor of like I have a dream and all that other stuff that he talked about. 
Mm -hmm. So it's definitely, he's not an easy to, Paul Robson is not an easy to sanitize figure, whereas we've become fairly good at sanitizing figures like MLK. Yeah, although it does make it easier, like obviously you should be able to learn about that in school, but if you don't, it makes it easier as an adult to be able to go and do your own research on him, read his book as well, and like gain more insight into who he was as a person if you didn't get to learn about it before. So that is that is the actually end of our episode. I was, that's Paul Robson in a very brief synopsis. Wow, what a is. fascinating figure, really. It's like, I'm really glad I was here for this episode. I never knew about him, and now I'm able to say that I've at least learned something about him, and I want to learn more. We, yeah, we encourage you to do look him up as much as possible. He's a very tremendously interesting figure. Our next episode is going to be about Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday, cool. So once again, I was Harrison Zyberg. This is uh, History of Music, or just more history of musicians I think are interesting. Um, the WCCS podcast, and thank you all for listening.